are going to do. And we can see, especially in Peter, I know Olga has told me how striking it has been to notice the change in Peter, Ashley, from uh, the evening of the arrest of Christ where he's uh, doubting, pouting, dropping, adding, cussing about it, uh, denying Christ multiple times under fire. And and now in Acts chapter 5, Tom, we're just about 60 days after that. We're just a couple of months after that rank, absolute, categorical, public denial. And Peter and the other guys just won't let anything stop them. The reality of the resurrection gave them a supernatural perspective on suffering. And that's what we all really need because, as I have often said, every Christian I know is either in a crisis, just coming out of a crisis, or just about to go into a crisis. And so we really need to be equipped, not give the enemy kind of the element of surprise when bad things happen around us, to us, or in us. Uh, This is Memorial Day weekend. I appreciate uh, what Dale said. We tend to forget that. We tend to think Memorial Day weekend is just an extra Monday holiday where we can have cookouts unless we're getting three inches of rain an hour, and then you stay in and try to hide from the floods. But, uh, yeah, this is really serious business, and, and Memorial Day remembers the our war dead, the people who were killed, men and women, since uh, Bunker Hill uh, on through the Fallujah campaign and whatever else we have to do in the wicked world. And I remember the Lord Jesus Christ said, Greater love hath no man than he give his life for his friends. And so, humanly speaking, all those wonderful heroes have paid the ultimate price so that in part we could have the freedom to worship here today. So let's... Uh, In the spirit of Memorial Day weekend, let's pray for uh, our teachability to God's word this morning and also for our peace officers, our firefighters, and our active military. And uh, Eric Ward, would you pray for us in that direction? Thank you very much, Eric. Uh, yesterday at our men's breakfast, we had a, a wonderful meal prepared by uh, Jenny Heath and then a, a great message, real practical, wonderful message on fatherhood and grandfatherhood by my man Rick Schellemeyer. So kind of piggybacking on that, I thought I would talk about just to warm up your capacity for abstract thought before we dive into the passage Uh, Top five things no Christian dad has ever said to his son or sons. Uh, Son, if you want to succeed in life, you must dedicate yourself to spend at least eight hours a day playing video games. They're not going to say that. Lately, you've been projecting I'm a lot smarter than my dad kind of attitude. And you know, I really hope nobody else notices that, that you're smarter than I am. I think I said that to Jamie once. Don't tell mom, but next week when I'm out of town, I want you to take this credit card, max it out, buy anything you want. You want to play football? I'd always dreamed that you would dump sports and focus on collecting stamps. And the number one thing no Christian dad's ever said to his son or sons, no son of mine is living under my roof. You're not living under my roof. Unless you have your ears pierced, so go right now and get it over with. <laughs> yeah. Um, in order to understand our passage this morning, Acts five twenty one through uh, forty two, we, we need to understand. Or I guess uh, Acts five twelve through forty two. Excuse me. We need to understand the context. I mean, we're going to see apostolic signs and wonders elicit different responses. The apostles arrested and then released by the Sanhedrin, uh, the apostles rearrested and almost killed by the Sanhedrin, 
But the aftermath is the apostles rejoice and return to the work because they have a supernatural perspective on suffering. But in order to better appreciate what's going on here, let's go back to some context. Go back to chapter 3, verse 6, please. In the aftermath of the healing of the lame man at the temple that Peter and John did in the name of Jesus Christ, uh, we have all this happening. Uh, Peter said to the lame man, uh, silver and gold I have not, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Stand up and walk. Drop down to verse 11. Uh, While he, the formerly paralytic beggar who's been healed, was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon in the temple precincts, full of amazement, because they've seen this guy begging out there for 30-something years. But when Peter saw this, he saw this is a, a chance to share Jesus with this group. He replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this, or why do you gaze at us, Peter and John, as if by our power or our piety we made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... The God of our fathers has glorified his servant, the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53, Jesus, the Messiah, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous Jesus, Messiah. Remember, Pilate said, do you want this murderer or do you want Jesus? And they said, we want Barabbas. Let's release Barabbas because as a little token on Passover, they would release one felon. Uh, you disowned him and you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer, Barabbas, to be granted to you and put to death the prince of life. Talk about paradoxes. The one whom God the Father raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses and it's on the basis of faith in his name. In the name of Jesus, uh, this man has been strengthened. Drop to chapter 4, verse 1. Talking about the context of chapter 5, verse 12 and following, which we'll look at this morning. Chapter 4, verse 1. As Peter and John were still processing, interacting with the crowd in the aftermath of the miracle and the proclamation of the risen Jesus, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees, the big shots from the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, came up to them being greatly disturbed Because they, Peter and John, were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them, Peter and John, and put them in jail until the next day because it was too late to process them late that afternoon, early that evening. Drop down to verse 4. But many of those who had heard in the crowd the message about Jesus, the resurrected Messiah, believed, and the number of men in the early church came to about 5,000. Look at verse 5. On the next day, after Peter and John spent all night in a very... If they were germaphobes, they wouldn't have survived. It wouldn't have been a very nice place to spend the night. And it doesn't look like God's doing anything for eight whole hours. But God's will is not just a what. It's also a when and a how, right? So next day, when the rulers and elders and scribes essentially... A a quorum of the Sanhedrin. Maybe they weren't all there on short notice, but the largest majority of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, shows up. They gather together, and Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, his son-in-law, and John and Alexander, and all those who were of high priestly descent uh, had gathered. And when they had placed Peter and John in the center of this semicircle in the Sanhedrin meeting room, they began to inquire, by what power... Or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you we're guilty. Let it be known to all the people of Israel we're guilty of that, that by the name of Jesus the Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God the Father raised from the dead, By this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Drop down to verse 15. But when they had ordered Peter and John to leave the meeting room, they're going to go into executive session. The Sanhedrin began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them 
is undeniable. It just flat happened. It's apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it, the name of Jesus, will not spread any further among the people, let us warn Peter and John to speak no longer to anyone in this name. And so when they had summoned Peter and John back into the meeting room, they commanded them, the Sanhedrin commands Peter and John, not to speak or teach at all, publicly or privately, in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John, very respectfully, so everybody knows what's going on here, sometimes silence can be deceptive. They're not going to get that command and walk out and then violate it. They're just going to say, hey, Michelle, uh, we heard what you said, but Peter and John just answered them straight up and said, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you, O honorable Sanhedrin members, rather to him, rather than to him, to God, you can be the judge. But for us, we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. And they're not talking about the miracle of the paralytic man. They're talking about the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. When they, this is important for the context this morning, the Sanhedrin had threatened Peter and John further. Like, you better not. We better not catch you uh, promoting this in any way. They let them go, finding no legal basis on which to punish them because in all of the fine uh, oral law that had disseminated from the Old Testament Torah, there was nothing about, you know, illegal, about healing blind people. That wasn't, or, or lame people. That wasn't illegal, technically. So they had no legal basis in which to keep them. Um, they just decided not to do anything except warn them because all the people were glorifying God for what had happened. For the man who had been uh, healed was 40 years old and he'd spent most of his life out there in public begging and everybody knew he had been healed. Okay? That's the context. Now, let's look at verses 12 through 16. Apostolic signs and wonders elicit varied, varied responses. And we want to think about a couple of groups that are involved in this. But let's read first, uh, maybe verses 12 through 14. At the hand of the apostles who have been released from the Sanhedrin and are still operating, even though they were warned not to, in promoting the gospel of Jesus at the hands of the apostles, not just Peter and John, but the other ten as well, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. Uh, the book of Acts is a transitional book. It's talking about unique events. The signs and wonders are basically things the apostles are doing to validate their claims about seeing the resurrected Christ. You see a few people closely associated with the apostles, like Stephen, who also do signs and wonders. But these are special miracles designed to do a couple of things. Their purpose is to confirm as supernatural pointers the validity of what the apostles were saying about who Jesus is, in part because they don't have a New Testament to read. All they've got is oral eyewitness testimony, but no written scripture. So that's the sign part. The miracles point to what the apostles are saying about Jesus. It's not to promote the apostles. It's to promote the gospel so people will think, see, and believe as God allows them to do that. The wonders part, uh, Blanche, would be the effect. You know, we talked about shock and awe, awe the shock and awe campaign to kind of uh, do major damage to infrastructure and to demoralize the enemy, shock and awe. Uh, the wonders would be the effect, the awe, A-W-E, the wonder caused by those who saw these miracles like the, the, the healing of the paralytic at the uh, beautiful gate in the temple. But look what happens here. At the signs of the apostles, verse 12, chapter 5, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest, we're talking about groups outside the church responding to all this, none of the rest, the first group is called the rest, dared to even associate with them. They wouldn't have anything to do with uh, the church with the Christians or with Jesus Christ. However, the people, which is a separate group from the rest, whomever the rest are, the people, kind of the average guy in the street, average gal in the street, held the Christians in high esteem and a subset of the people, some of them were actually believing and all the more were becoming believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women uh, and notice that the, the book of Acts really emphasizes the dynamics of men and women both actively involved and fully uh, 
vested members of the church of Jesus Christ. Men and women were constantly added to their number. So we've got the rest, whomever they are. We've got the average folks who respect Christianity. Let me do it this way. The rest, whomever they are, and I'm going to try to suggest who I think they are, uh, reject Christ and Christianity and Christians. The people mentioned in verse, uh, second part of verse 13, are average folks who receive, uh, or I should say respect Christianity and what the Christians are trying to do. They respect them. But then you've got a subset under that uh, that are mentioned all the more people within the set of the average folk were actually receiving Christ. So uh, the people are just average people. That's pretty easy. The people that are believing are a subset of those average people who are at least open to what's going on here, Michelle. They're not just throwing it out uh, like the rest are. But the question is, who are the rest? It's clearly a label for people negative to Christians, Christ, and Christianity. And I would just say, if context tells us what the Bible means, Clay, um, who are the only people in this context who are negative to Christ, Christianity, and Christians? Go back to chapter 4. We'll do a little rereading here. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. After Peter and John heal this paralytic, this hopeless case, humanly speaking, uh, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of Judaism, uh, send their people to interrupt and arrest Peter and John, right? Isn't that what happens? And verse 5 of the next day, they bring them in front of the Sanhedrin. And so I'm going to suggest that uh, the rest is referring to however many people showed up in chapter 4 in the Sanhedrin meeting room to interrogate and then to try to stop the ministry of Peter and John. However many of those people uh, that were part of that body and or staff members of that body who weren't at that actual meeting, that's the ones. And I think what Luke's saying is the, the guys with the PhDs in theology and, and all the uh, degrees from the rabbinical schools uh, that were considered to be the knowledgeable leaders of Judaism, they're pretty much missing, missing the boat. Everybody else is at least open to this, and some of them, an increasing number, are actually believing so, uh, you know, there are some just because somebody has a, a Ph.D. doesn't necessarily mean they're they're any smarter than anybody else. They've probably done some really intense research in one very fine area. If you want to know about the macrochiastic literary structure of the prologue or epilogue of the book of Revelation, I literally know as much about that as probably anybody in the world. But who cares? I, I do. But, you know, but I can't make my lawnmower start. You know, I can't fix my plumbing. So. Uh, but uh, I remember as a, as a freshman college student, you know, taking a biology class in, in college and the guy teaching the biology class had his name on the textbook. And that kind of, I just was very impressive to think this guy had written a textbook. Now he's teaching it. The guy who wrote it is teaching it. Um, but I found pretty quickly, not everything he said was necessarily so, right? So Luke's letting you know that the big shots, the experts are not buying in, but the average people uh, are. And Paul talks about that several times in his letters. You know, there aren't a lot of real fancy people in our churches. There aren't a lot of really rich people in our churches. There aren't a lot of really genius types in the churches. There are a few, but most of us are just average sinners saved by grace. So um, I think uh, when people talk about how exclusive and evil Christianity is, Christianity has always been very inclusive. Whosoever will may come. And you don't have to know Greek or Hebrew or be a theologian to be saved. Salvation involves like a little child's faith. Little children are pretty quick to uh, trust in things. Uh, I think that can be a problem because, you know what, uh, as the wards raise their kids, uh, I think little kids who grow up in Christian homes have faith in their parents' faith. You know, if Eleanor said, hey, Mommy, where is China? And if you said it's just south of Mexico... She would believe that. She, she has faith in whatever you're saying, you know. But, and, and little kids having faith in their parents' faith isn't saving faith. However, I think typically when you're reared in a Christian home, at some point, it may be pretty early, it may be later, at some point, if you're going to come to saving faith as an individual, you can't believe that my parents believe in Jesus. You've got to believe in Jesus. It's, it has to go from having faith in your parents' faith to personal faith. But, uh, yeah, he's just emphasizing, hey, the church continues to grow even though the experts 
are saying this isn't right. It can't be true. And so don't be too alarmed at the fact that our culture today is rapidly saying we're wrong. And we're not just wrong, Carla. We're evil. We're repressive. You know, I grew up in a culture that said, oh, yeah, all the smart people don't really believe all that stuff that Brad believes. But they thought in the, he, at least he's a sincere, nice person. And now it's like you don't believe in X, Y, or Z. And you are repressive, backward, you're a hater, uh, that kind of thing. So uh, the beat goes on. This is nothing new. Look at verses 15 and 16. Uh, we're thinking about apostolic signs and wonders elicit varied responses. Not everybody who sees the miracles necessarily believes. Um, verse 15 says, uh, the church is growing to such an extent, and there's so much response to the signs and wonders, that they even are carrying their sick out into the streets laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Does that text say that everybody on whom the shadow was falling was healed? No. It says people were wanting that to happen, thinking it might help. The lady who grabbed Jesus' garment, thinking, if I just touch that, I'll be healed, was healed, but not because she touched the garment, because he turns around and makes sure she processes, your faith made you well. And because I chose to heal you, it's not because you just touched something or my shadow moved over you. But that was kind of telling you what the, uh, the average people are thinking. And the average people are quite often open to faith, but they don't necessarily correct, uh, connect the dots correctly. So that's why you need people like pastor teachers, you know, to tell you how to connect the dots, right? You're welcome. You know, I'm happy to do that you know, as best I can. Uh, also, people from the uh, cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all types of them were being healed of all kinds of different things. So, uh, you know, when when, Peter, when when the apostles here in a minute get released miraculously from prison, that happened, but it's not saying every time a Christian gets arrested for being a Christian, they're going to be miraculously, supernaturally released the fact that we're doing some amazingly unique signs and wonders here to punctuate the beginning of the church doesn't mean everybody with faith always gets healed. It doesn't happen in the New Testament. It doesn't happen in real life, although God's not limited by our categories. But here we've got spectacular things getting the church started. Let me say this. One thing that some skeptics today will say is, if I could just see a miracle, I'd believe. Show me a miracle. Well, you know what? That, that's just not true, because in, in the Scripture, we're told that the rest of the intelligentsia won't even positively associate with the Christians. They hate Christians. The more miracles, the more they hate us. The reality, I think, is that miracles can catalyze faith. They can kind of speed up the process of people coming to faith in Christ. And they definitely confirm faith. In believers as we walk through and we we see an answer prayer here we see something inexplicable happen we realize God is actually working things out for us in, in our experience that can confirm our faith but miracles don't coerce faith uh, don't cause everyone who sees a miracle to believe and it didn't happen in biblical times and it would not happen today either look at verses 17 through 24 and, and by the way just officially you know we've, we've, we've uh, been praying for rain for a long time, and uh, about a month ago, and I, I think I should get full credit for this, I actually put the prayer request in the bulletin for rain in bold print. Uh, I think I'm going to just totally remove it for a couple of weeks. <laughs> just see if we can kind of dry out a little bit, you know, and then we'll go from there, okay? Yeah, the apostles arrested by men, but released by God. Look at, uh, speaking of signs and wonders not causing people to believe, the Sanhedrin doesn't believe, ain't going to believe, and they're not happy about the miracles here. Yeah, look at verse uh, 17. But the high priest, even in the aftermath of all the buzz about these miracles, and there are spectacular, unique kind of miracles happening all around him, and he knows it's happening, but it doesn't cause him to believe. It just makes him even harder. The high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy, because now we've got competition, and they laid, laid hands on all 12 of the apostles and put them in a public jail. So that's never very much fun, is it? So they're arrested by men. But as somebody said, man proposes and God disposes. But during the night, and not the angel of the Lord, but an angel of the Lord. This is supernatural. You can't reproduce this in the laboratory. 
opened the gates of the prison and taking him out, he said, uh, go stand and speak to the people in the temple, just like you've been doing the whole message of this life. Don't stop doing what you're doing. We like what you're doing. Keep going. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest and his associates on the council, when, excuse me, when the high priest and the associates came, they called the council, the Sanhedrin together, even all the center of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house. See, they don't know the guys have been released. They're, they're having their early morning meeting to process the apostles and probably throw them in jail permanently, if not kill them. Uh, ordered for the prison house a guy to bring the apostles into the meeting room so they can process them. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison. They're gone. Uh, And so they, the guys working for the Sanhedrin in the jail, returned and reported back saying, we found the prison house locked quite securely. And so they didn't break out in that sense. And the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened it all up, we found no one inside the cell they had been in. Now, when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about, because they're going to get, they're going to get blamed. See, they're going to get blamed, right, for it. It's not really their fault uh, about what, have, what had happened here kind of thing. So uh, you've got a, a miracle which, again, the book of Acts is describing stuff that happened. It really happened. I have no doubt this happened. It's not saying every single time a Christian gets arrested, you can depend within 24 hours of God to send a miracle, an angel to fix it. Uh, There are thousands, tens of thousands of Christians in horrific conditions in North Korea in internment camps. We can see with satellite that are probably as bad as anything Hitler did, if that's possible. Uh, All over the world, Christians are in Sudan. There there are no internment camps. They find you, rape you and kill you real quick. And I had a lot of Sudanese students at uh, Jets and. I'm sure uh, many of them, have, talking about Memorial Day, have paid the ultimate price. So don't assume this is going to happen the next time somebody you know in the mission field gets arrested. But it could. But it's unique, and that's one reason it's recorded. Not because it didn't happen, but because it did happen, but it's unique. So the apostolic signs produce different kind of reactions. The apostles are arrested but released supernaturally. Now the heart of the story. Look at verse 25. And uh, verse 40, skip some stuff. We'll get it next time, maybe, Lord willing. (laughs) Look at verse 25. But someone, it's always someone. (laughs) Somebody said, Pastor Brad, they didn't like this. Somebody doesn't like everything. 33 years in ministry, somebody doesn't like everything. Just so you know, including me, I don't, there's a lot of stuff I don't like too. So just let you know, but someone came and reported to them, the men, cause they're saying, Hey, where's these guys we arrested? We want to process them. Maybe kill them today. The men whom you put in prison yesterday are standing in the temple precincts, teaching the people. I mean, what's happening here? Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence. They didn't beat them up and rough them up like they would have. They kind of have to politely kind of, hey, guys, we need to have a meeting here because all the people, just the average folks are watching all this. And there might be a riot if they get too violent. For they were afraid of the people that they, the arresting officers, might be stoned. And when they had brought them, the apostles, back into the meeting room of the Sanhedrin, they stood them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you, that's plural, all y'all, strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. He won't even say the name of Jesus. You know, it's kind of disrespectful, especially in that culture. Uh, Not to continue to teach in his name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. They're jealous and they're afraid they might be culpable if people get too excited about Jesus in that context. Where did they warn them strictly about not doing this? Go back to chapter 4, verse 18. Uh, remember, they arrested Peter and John. And speaking to them and certainly to the leaders of the church through them, they commanded them not to speak publicly or teach in the synagogue and the church at all in the name of Jesus. For a long time, uh, 
the opposition on the moral issues in our culture were saying, look, just let us have freedom and don't hassle us. And how dare you tell us what we can do in our bedrooms and stuff. Just leave us alone. And we let them alone. And then they uh, have gotten out of the position where unless we not just leave them alone, but validate their conception of morality, then we're evil and we're bad and we're repressive, you know. And so uh, I remember as recently as a couple of years ago, a major leader in our country was all for civil unions and didn't think uh, anything beyond that was necessary or even wise. And then he changed his position, what, 18 months ago. And now uh, we've all supposed to salute, you know, and not ask any questions. But uh, I haven't heard anybody lately say what they were saying to us. What they were saying to us as recently as a couple of years ago was, hey, you know what? Live and let live. Let everybody decide what morality is. And you can say anything you want to in your churches. Just don't you bring it out to the public square. And increasingly, we're getting to the point where we can't even probably teach certain portions of Scripture in church without being seen as dangerous, backward, repressive. And, you know, those of us who uh, are evangelical believers can't stop believing Scripture because it's not politically correct anymore. And so just pick up on that nuance the warning that was given in 4.18 was twofold. And if you read it too quickly, you might see it. You might not see it. They commanded them not to speak publicly. Don't go out in the temple precincts and, and speak about Jesus. And don't even teach it in private, in a church setting, in a synagogue setting, in a home setting. You can't even say that. The thought police don't want you to even think stuff they don't like. Uh, we were said to be repre- repressive and backward. It seems like it's the other way around. They're wanting to repress us, aren't they? Of course, they've got the power now or seem to. Uh, but anyway, the apostles are rebuked. Now, look at Peter's response. And he's just using this. Hey, Olga, here's Peter. What did he do two months ago? Yeah, he totally bombed out, man. He wimped out. Uh, I can remember a couple of times in my life where I just totally wimped out of things. I should have just dug my heels in and done the right thing. But, you know, you want everybody to like you. And then you realize they don't like you either way. So you may as well uh, tell them what the deal is, right? So, you know, once you hit your 60s, you, you get over stuff like that. Uh, Peter responds, and he's just using this as a chance to preach here, Blanche. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And that's what he said back in chapter 4, not quite as succinctly. After, go back to 4.18, they commanded him not to speak publicly or teach privately about this. But Peter and John said, look, uh, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than him, you can decide, but we can't stop speaking. So he's straight up with them. And now he's very succinctly stating the principle, uh, we got to obey God rather than man. But this is the same guy who in in, in 1 Peter 2 says, obey human government. And yet this is human government. He's not obeying human government. That's a contradiction, right? No, Ashley, 1 Peter 2 is saying in general, like an umbrella, as a general principle, in general, obey human government, obey legitimate human authority at work, on your sports team, in the classroom, at church, in the government, until or unless it's a sin to respond to human authority. And then if it's a direct sin, like you're going to tell the apostolic witnesses of the resurrection they can't tell anybody anymore, and they're going to go, okay. Can't do that. And he told them that both times straight up and here very succinctly, we've got to obey God over you when there's a direct conflict. And uh, until recently in American history, there haven't been a lot of Amer- direct conflicts like that. I think we're rapidly getting to the point where there are going to be. And I think the principle is we've got to uh, live in integrity and let God help us deal with the consequences. And there may be real consequences to pay for sure, uh, unfortunately. Now, look at verse 30 through 32. So Peter's just straight up, and now he's going to respond and just tell him what the deal is. Hey, the God of our fathers raised up. We're talking about made him live again after he's dead. Literal bodily resurrection. Can't reproduce this in a laboratory. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, whom you had put to death by pushing him onto Pilate and insisting that he uh, crucify him and hang him on a cross. He, Jesus, is the one whom God the Father exalted to his right hand. That sounds a lot like Psalm 110. If we had more time, we'd go to Psalm 110. But trust me, 
They know about this person, the Son of God, being exalted in the heavens by God the Father, Yahweh. Uh, they know what he's saying. They're saying Jesus is the one the Messiah talked about in Psalm 110. He's the one who's the right hand of the God of the Father. He's the Prince. He's the Savior. He's the basis of salvation, repentance to Israel, and forgiveness of sins. And we, me and my other 11 friends here, are witnesses. We saw all of this. It, it literally happened. Of these things. And so it is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Uh, That sounds a little bit like what Peter's going to say in chapter 10. Go to chapter 10 of Acts, which is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible where Peter goes to Caesarea. Tom, you ever been to Caesarea in Israel? It's a real place, right? Real people, real places, real events. And Peter's preaching to a soldier. You know, the New Testament is very, very uh, positive about soldiers because I think we had some really uh, uh, high-quality soldiers that, like Cornelius that are focused on the New Testament. Uh, they're probably not as good as David Moore, but they're close. Some of them are, okay? Just let you know. But, man, I love what he says here. Peter, uh, same guy who's testifying to the big shots in Jerusalem. Here he's in Caesarea in a guy's house, a, a centurion's, Roman centurion's house. And does this sound familiar? This is a one-trick pony. I mean, there's only one gospel. This is the core of his message. Christ died for our sins and rose again. Now, look at this. Acts 10, 39. Peter says, We are witnesses of all the things Jesus did, both in the land right around the Jews all over the place, including Galilee and specifically in Jerusalem. And they put him to death by hanging him on a cross. But God, the Father, raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible not to everybody, but the witnesses like us who were chosen beforehand by God, the apostolic witnesses and some others, that is to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people. If Jesus says, go into all the world, and Sanhedrin says, stop talking about it, who do you, who do you go with? Every time they're going to go with, with the Lord, right? Um, not to all the people, but the witnesses who ate and drank with him, he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify, this is the one, Jesus is the one who history revolves around. His first coming as the lamb, second coming as the lion. He's going to be the judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the Old Testament prophets bear witness that what? Through his name, who he is, his person, his program, his priorities, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins, even Gentiles in Caesarea you don't have to be a Baptist, a Presbyterian, or a Methodist. Uh, whosoever will may come. Go back to chapter 5. So Peter's just putting their cards on the table uh, very clearly with no compromise there. Now, the Sanhedrin is going to go into executive session again. This is the second time they've done that. And there's nothing wrong with that, saying, you know, when you've got a controversial issue, uh, and you've got the players in there. Sometimes you can let them leave. Just let the decision makers get together, kind of compare notes, come up with uh, the right thing to do. The process, there's nothing wrong with the process in that sense. And, and you do that at times. But uh, look at verse 33. Um, yeah. But when they had heard this, that is, Peter saying, hey, we're not going to stop. And Jesus is the Messiah. They were cut to the quick, and they intended to do what? These guys have the power to suggest to Pilate that the apostles be killed, and they, they killed Jesus on their suggestion. They would have killed these guys to this. There's a real chance. You know, if I talk about the miracle in this passage, you're going to think, well, the angel coming and getting them out of prison. I'm going to call that a class A miracle. That's directly supernatural. There's also another miracle. You've got a Pharisaical member of the Sanhedrin who's going to say, before everybody else decides to lynch these guys. Let's think about this for a minute. Look what happens. Pretty subtle, but this is a class B miracle. No supernatural laws, uh, no law, natural laws broken supernaturally, but the timing's perfect. They're going to kill these guys. That's the plan. Let's just liquidate them. But a Pharisee, the Sadducees had the majority power on the Sanhedrin, but you had some Pharisees. We'll, we'll describe the difference on a different uh, date. Named Gamaliel, he's pretty famous because he was Paul's teacher, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people. Historical sources confirm this guy was considered to be one of the leading lights of Judaism in the first century. Stood up in the council and gave orders 
to put the men outside. This is the executive session I was talking about. Get the apostles out. Let's talk about this. And he said to his fellow Sanhedrin members, once the apostles are out of the room, men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. What are they proposing to do to these men? Verse 33, kill them like today in a time frame they can understand, right? He says, hey, let's slow down. Let's just think for a minute. Uh, what's the best thing to do here? Uh, for some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody. <laughs> Everybody thinks they're somebody. And you know what, David? You are somebody. And you're special. And you're unique. But so everybody else in the room. So try to get over it, okay? Because if you're not, you'll get very self-centered and stuff. Uh, but Thutis thought he was somebody. And a group of about 400 men, probably heavily armed, as opposed to the apostles, joined up with him. But he was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this uh, man, Judas of Galilee, we know... A little bit about Judas from historical sources. Uh, Josephus and others refer to this guy. This isn't Judas of Iscariot. Judas is a different guy. Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished. And all those who followed him were scattered. In the aftermath of Thutis' death, they bumped around for a little bit and they went away. Judas's death bumped around for a little bit. Aftermath of Jesus' death, this is just going to be a short-term, no big deal. If you kill these guys, you make martyrs, you make it worse. Let's just kind of... You know, maybe flog them and, and just kind of keep an eye on them. Just let's, let's just uh, not put gasoline on the fire is what they're saying. So in the present case here with Jesus, he's dead. We all know that. And they're saying he's resurrected, but we know that didn't happen. And, and, and now we're going to how we're going to deal with these guys. Just leave them alone. Just kind of keep an eye on them and it'll go away. I say to you, uh, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action, what they're talking about is that man is going to be overthrown. But if it's of God, you're not going to be able to throw it anyway, uh, or else you're going to be found to be fighting against God. Now, I, I, some people really read a lot of virtue in the Gamaliel. And I've got to tell you, Nancy, I'm kind of skeptical. I, I personally, now, we may see Gamaliel in heaven, but I don't, I don't think he's a believer at this point. I don't even think he's even thinking about it at this point. I think he's just encouraging moderation without conversion. I think he's just saying, look, this is a problem, but it's not going to be a big deal. It's no big deal. This is no bigger than Thutis or Judas of Galilee. Just leave it alone. Don't give them any publicity. Just let them kind of, they'll end up getting mad at each other. You know, all those Christians always get mad at each other. They'll just kind of eat each other up. And they'll go away. It's not a big deal. Uh, hypothetically, it's a, if it's of God, it will continue. And he spoke better than he knew. Now, if you want to say, well, he's, uh, you know, trying to you know, Testify to his faith in Christ. Maybe so. Gamaliel might be in heaven, but if, if so, I think he came to faith after this event. I think he's just uh, preaching, encouraging moderation and leaving it at that. But uh, we'll see. Okay. Now look at verse 40. So they took his advice. That's the good news. They're not going to have them uh, killed this afternoon. Uh, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them. They had them flogged. That's 39 lashes. 39 lashes can kill you. It, it can be debilitating. It will leave lasting scars for sure. This is a horrific thing. Uh, I was amazed at how many people went to the Passion of the Christ, and the thing that struck them wasn't the crucifixion, but it was the horrible beating the Lord suffered before the crucifixion. It's in the Gospels. We've told you about it. Um, but, but it is horrific to see. And so this is not you know, just kind of a slap on the wrist. This is a serious penalty, but it's not capital punishment. So they, they called him in, uh, basically said, don't speak anymore in the name of Jesus and flog them. Uh, the order was flog them and order them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So uh, they're worn, they're beaten, but what? They're released. They're still out in public. They're still able to continue. And you might think, well, I mean, if I'm them at this point, verses 41 and 42 might say, and so Brad beat a tactical retreat to the far side of the Sea of Galilee and prayed about what he should do next. But these guys had been ordered to get the word out in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world, and they're going to do it come heck or high water. Visual aid out there. So they went their way from the presence of the council 
discouraged, but determined to try to do the best they could. Now, they went away from the President of the Council, and they have a supernatural perspective on this thing. They said, wow, we're actually doing enough testimony about Jesus as Messiah. The big shots are having to react like that. That's not necessarily a bad thing. They, and I've always been struck by this statement, even as a young kid, the first time I saw it or read it or somebody told me about it. So they went their way from the presence of the council. And it, as a young kid, I didn't realize how horrible flogging was, really. Rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Does that sound like what the tele-evangelist or the big-time media preachers tell you for the most part about Christianity? No, it's if you have enough faith, you get everything you want. God's just waiting for you to ask him the right way, and he'll give you everything you want. He's a cosmic Coke machine. You push the buttons, you get whatever you want. He's a genie. Rub the lamp the right way, he'll give you everything you want. His plan's way bigger than what you want. And unfortunately, it's way bigger than what I want. We don't get what we want, but we get what we need. Uh, Hebrews 12. We're almost done. But this is such an important verse for me as I deal with my issues and other people's issues. I think about it all the time. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Uh, Therefore, since we have so many generations of people in the faith who've overcome all kinds of obstacles and didn't doubt, pout, and drop out, even up to martyrdom, let us also lay lay aside every encumbrance and specifically, whatever sins tend to deflect us personally, which so easily entangle us, and let us run with endurance the Christian race. Now, how are you going to do that? Here's how you do it, Jenny. You fix your eyes not on your circumstances or your wants or your likes, but on Jesus, who was crucified but resurrected. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy of Joy is more profound than happiness. Happiness is based on happenings. Joy is the inner contentment of soul doing the right thing to the glory of God. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame. And he wasn't crazy about the pain either, right? And now I sat down at the right hand. That's Psalm 110. Go back and we'll finish. The apostles rejoice and return to the work because they've got a supernatural perspective on suffering. Uh, Rather than feeling sorry for themselves, they felt privileged to be able to suffer for the name of Christ. And that's the only thing that really kept them going. And I would just say that the the take-home here is the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ should totally transform our point of view on life and suffering now. And we, as believers, we believe Jesus was resurrected, and we believe that because of his salvation he's given us, we're going to be with him. But I think a lot of times we put the blinders of time-space reality on, and all we see is whatever we're dealing with right now, we know somebody else is dealing, dealing with, and it really becomes overwhelming. But if your conception of God is smaller than the, your conception of your problems, of course you're going to be overwhelmed. You've got to get a bigger, outside-of-the-now conception uh, of God if you're going to hack it in the ups and downs of life. Uh, Jim Elliott said, he or she is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, uh, the skeptical response to that, Ray, is you people are preaching pie in the sky, stuff that's not even ever going to happen, but you're holding this heaven out, and everybody knows that's not going to happen, and resurrection didn't happen, and you're holding this stuff way out somewhere that's never going to happen just to keep people content in their change and going to work and doing obeying the rules and stuff like that. And I always say, we're not talking about pie in the sky. We're talking about Christ, the risen Christ in heaven. That's what we're talking about. And um, he gives us promises like this. Basically, he says, don't panic. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Keep on believing in God the Father for the now and the not yet. Keep on believing in me. Uh, And one thing you're supposed to believe and, and reckon as relevant to your current crisis is... In my father's house, there are many dwelling places, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it weren't so, I would have told you. It's just about now. It's dangerous to be a Christian now. Just get out of town. But it's worth standing for because it's so much more than just the now. i got to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, what, friend? I'm going to come again and receive you into myself, which means at the rapture and or at your physical death, if it happens before the rapture, you're going to be escorted to heaven. This thing about... 
uh, if, if you die and go to the pearly gates and they say, why should you let me in? They're not going to ask that question because some of you dumb dumbs would give the wrong answer or be fuzzy. It's not dependent on you being able to give a theologically coherent answer. Uh, I would say, why you let me in? Because of the merits of Jesus Christ, because he died for my sins and rose again. And through faith, his merits have been applied to me. That, I think, is the answer. But Jesus is going to escort you to heaven and welcome you into heaven. He's got a special place prepared for us in heaven. And uh, the apostles got that. You might say they pretty had a pretty dramatic experience. But if you think back to when you first came to faith and embraced Christ as Savior, that's a pretty that, that's the that's probably the greatest miracle God does in time and space right now is opening up sinners' eyes and hearts to believe and trust Jesus Christ alone. If you've never done that, today can be the day of salvation for you. The Bible says we've all sinned. We can't fix it. Jesus, only he can because he died to pay for your sins, your moral debt on the cross, and he rose again and through active, receptive trust. He gives us that. But uh, quite often we believe in the resurrection, but we don't apply the reality of the resurrection directly to our perspective on a day-to-day basis. And that's a spiritual killer. Can't do that. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I want to pray that uh, help us not just to believe in the resurrection, but to believe and see in faith the many ways the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection of Christ totally changes our reality. Take the blinders of just the now off. Not that we stop dealing with the now, but that we see the now through the not yet and through the accomplishments of Christ. Uh, so often we're tempted to be sunshine disciples uh, when it's sunny and it's easy and we see how pieces fit together. Uh, we're pretty happy, but then when it's dark and obscure and hard, uh, we we just dig our heels in and stop walking. And I want to pray that you give us the endurance we need to keep walking, keep trusting, keep obeying, help us to doubt our doubts and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith. In his name we pray. Amen.